Mr. O, the Z, the Oz, that's me, Brooklyn, Brownsville, Urban View, you know what we do, the perspectives, today's topic, black health, disparities, our myth, or miseducation. Got the clipped interviews, PhDs, MDs, we'll see. But for now, drop it, and let's hear how they chop it. Yes, glad to be back. Next episode, as Dr. Dre would say, we here for it. That's right. Black health disparities, our myth or our miseducation. Which one is it? Because uh, over the years, I'm sure, you know, you or your parents or your grandparents, they have all maybe had, you know, inklings that, you know, the black health system is a disparity, uh, has disparities within the white health system, which, you, which it should never be. It should be one health system, you know, a human health system. But a lot of times, you know, racism, you know, hey, it bleeds, it's ugly, uh vein up into the situation of healthcare and and the administration of that kid. So today, uh, I thought this was a a very touching issue that would, you know, shed light to, you know, the before, the after, the here, and the now. You know, we have to open our eyes and see. You know, the world isn't as as we would have it. We have to have it, you know, hey, the way it is, you know, and try to navigate through it because like I said, racism and prejudice is here. It's been here, you know, since we hit the soils of this land, you know, it's been, uh, it's been shielded. It's been camouflaged, but you know, even within the health system, which should be a generalized system for everybody, it still exists. You know, some people indiscriminately, you know, don't realize it, but you know, um, you know, you, you can't hide it. You know, you put a mirror on it, you see the differences. You know, I'm not saying this is it's in every facility or anything like that, but I'm just saying, you know, uh, it shows its ugly head, you know, uh, quite a bit. In our communities, you know, we suffer behind that. But uh, today I have a very interesting um, uh, professor from uh, what's this, um, Fordham University, Kamani Paul Emil, J.D., and she has a Ph.D., Associate Professor of Fordham University Law School also Associate Director, Center of Race and Law Justice of Fordham University. Very black, uh, you know, African-American woman, man, very intelligent and astute. And she's going to give us a, a little depiction, you know, of, you know, uh, what she, from the studies and uh, her, her own personal experiences and as well as many others in the health professions experiences uh, with this issue of uh, black health care, you know, and, and uh, some of the disparities, you know, and, we, we need to deal with the racist uh, racism within the system as well as outside the system, you know. And then some of that is, is dealing with the racist patients. As strange as it may sound, you know, some people are opposed to, you know, pre- receiving care from someone of another ethnic background. Now, why that should matter when, when you're sick and in the hospital and needing of care is, is beyond me, but you know, some of this stuff, you know, it reeks so deep in, in, the, in people 
you know, you would, you would not even imagine, but like I says, I'm going to re- really let her, you know, get into it because, you know, she, she covers it so very, very well. And, uh, I don't want to spoil it at all. I want to let her get into it and, 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 um, break it down for us, you know? So we're going to go to Kamani Paul Emil, PhD, Associate Professor, Professor of Fordham University. Good afternoon. I want to thank Doug for inviting me here today to talk about an important issue that's been getting a lot of attention lately, and that's what to do when the patient is racist. And what are the legal, ethical, and clinical uh, implications for patients, providers, and healthcare institutions? So I'm going to start with a case study. A 57-year-old man enters the emergency department late one night with shortness of breath and a fever. A nurse does an initial workup and thinks his condition could be serious. So she goes, she calls the the uh, Dr. Jones, the physician on call, to evaluate the patient. When Dr. Jones enters the room, the patient says, oh my God, I'm glad you're finally here. My television isn't working. Can you just fix it? Dr. Jones explains that she's his physician and she's going to do the evaluation. And the patient gets agitated and turns to the nurse and says, I don't want to be treated by a black doctor. Get this woman out of my room. Get me a real doctor. Now, you can fill in the blank here with respect to the rejected physician. It could be a Latino physician, it could be an Asian physician, it could be a Muslim physician, any of these categories apply. And in fact, I call this one of medicine's open secrets because you'd be hard pressed to find a physician, but particularly a physician of color, who hasn't had this experience or who doesn't know someone who has. Scenarios such as this are much more common than one would think, occur at hospitals throughout the country, and um, this issue has gotten a lot of attention lately, due in part to our changing social and political climate, as evidenced by um, incidents such as the recent incident up at um, Charlottesville, Virginia, and elsewhere. And what makes these physician-patient encounters so challenging is that they raise many thorny, ethical, legal, and clinical challenges for all the parties involved. So for example, although physicians have an obligation to treat patients, even those patients they find distasteful, these encounters can be painful and degrading for the uh, rejected physician. And scenarios such as this are particularly difficult when the patient is competent, but not stable enough to be sent elsewhere. So before I get too far into this, I want to take a moment to identify the primary groups who are affected when these um, issues occur, these these, uh, patient-physician encounters occur, along with their rights and responsibilities. So we have patients, and for you, uh, most of you are pediatricians, we have patients and families. Um, We have healthcare providers and healthcare institutions. So just as an aside, my, my, the case studies that I'm going to use uh, are based on um, adult patients. But as we go through and talk about the case studies, we can tailor it to, uh, uh, we can work in the family and child perspective as well. Okay, so we have patients. What are the, pa- let, uh, yeah, let's start with patients. What are the patient's interests? Well, patients have a right to receive stabilizing treatment. This is in keeping with EMTALA, the Emergency Medical Treatment and Active Labor Act. It requires hospitals to screen and stabilize, if necessary, uh, patients in an emergency situation or to arrange for a transfer 
to a facility able to provide appropriate care. This is with patient consent. Patients also have a right to refuse medical treatment, which includes the right to refuse wanted treatment from an unwanted provider. So this right to refuse is a well-respected legal and ethical principle that's based in legal, uh, uh, which is based in informed consent and legal rules that protect patients from battery, which is unwanted touching. Uh, many hospitals also have patient bill of rights documents, which include explicit language about a patient's right to refuse treatment from an unwanted physician. So I was recently up at uh, Brigham and Women's Hospital, and here's theirs, and you'll notice at the bottom it says you have the right to refuse to be observed, examined, or treated by students or any other staff without jeopardizing your access to care. Okay. So not all hospitals have this uh, language, but many do. So. Let's move on to healthcare providers. Healthcare workers have the duty to treat, but they also have employment rights that have to be respected. So they have a right to a workplace free from certain types of discrimination, specifically discrimination on the basis of sex, race, religion, ethnicity. These are considered legally protected characteristics. Now, institutional rights and responsibilities. Um, Healthcare institutions have to meet EMTALA requirements. So again, this is a federal anti-dumping statute. It requires hospitals, it protects patients from being dumped by hospitals without first being screened or stabilized. Um, institutions also have to protect their healthcare workers' employment rights. So for example, if a healthcare institution continually forces its clinicians to treat or refrain from treating patients who've rejected them on the basis of race or ethnicity, the healthcare institution could be liable for creating a hostile work environment. Okay, so in broad strokes, those are the, the parties whose interests are most directly implicated and their rights and responsibilities. So at this point, you're probably thinking to yourself, okay, this is pretty straightforward, I get it. But it can get murkier the deeper you go. So for example, with respect to patients, should the race or ethnicity of the patient matter with respect to how we deal with these cases? So should we distinguish among different types of patients making these reassignment demands? And on the medical provider side, should different types of medical professionals have different rights and responsibilities? So does and should the law distinguish between doctors and nurses or others in these cases? And what about healthcare institutions? Are they damned if they do, damned if they don't? So if they accommodate a patient's demands for a doctor of a different race or ethnicity, are they discriminating against the assigned physician and opening themselves up to legal liability? But if they don't accommodate the patient's demands, will they be liable for, uh, for violating laws against battery by forcing the patient to be treated by an unwanted doctor without consent? But on the other hand, if they don't screen and stabilize the patient, will they be liable for violating EMTALA? So again, what do you do? So my colleagues and I, my, my co-authors here, Alicia Fernandez, um, Bernard Lowe, and Alex Smith and I um, provide guidelines in an article we published in the New England Journal of Medicine called Dealing with Racist Patients. And prior to this, I wrote a lengthier piece published in the uh, UCLA Law Review that looked at the legal uh, implications of, these, uh, of how we deal with these um, reassignment demands. And I have to say, when I first heard about patients demanding different doctors based on race or ethnicity, I was shocked and my first instinct was this shouldn't happen 
and if it does, these patients most certainly shouldn't be accommodated. So I began researching the issue. And as you know, I'm a law professor and I research and write on issues that occur at the intersection of bioethics, health law, and anti-discrimination law. So I initially focused my research on looking at the, identifying the laws that could be brought to bear on, these, on, on this phenomenon. And this led me to the 1964 Civil Rights Act. This is a federal law that bars discrimination on the basis of sex, race, ethnicity, and religion. And Title VII of the Act addresses uh, employment discrimination. Among other things, it says that employers can't cater to the discriminatory preferences of their clientele. So for example, if you went to a restaurant and told the proprietor that you only wanted to be treated by black waiters or you didn't want to be treated by Latino waiters, if the proprietor accommodated your, uh, your request, she'll have violated Title VII. So this sounds a lot like our hospital scenario, so I assumed I'd find some case, uh, some case law here, but there wasn't any. There have been no reported cases of physicians challenging the accommodation of patient racial preferences under Title VII. And this is so even though, even though we know these types of physician-patient encounters uh, occasionally occur. But there have been several cases brought by another group of healthcare providers um, who've been rejected by patients on the basis of race or ethnicity. Can you guess which group of healthcare professionals I'm talking about? Nurses, that's right, look, everybody's got it. Nurses, exactly, nurses and nursing assistants. And part of the reason is that nurses, and, nurses tend to be employees of the hospitals where they work, while physicians, not always and less so now, but still are often independent contractors. So if a nurse is reassigned um, by her employer, uh, um, then uh, the nurse's employment rights are violated. The hospital or nursing home is violated Title VII. Um, physicians, on the other hand, in order to maintain their independent contractor status, um, hospitals can't have too much say or control over the manner and means through which they do their work. And even when physicians aren't independent contractors, they tend to have more autonomy to switch out patients and make these sorts of decisions. Um, so physicians aren't being forced to accommodate, but rather tend to decide amongst themselves on individual circumstances and um, thus aren't suing. So again, in broad strokes, that's the legal landscape for healthcare providers and institutions. But it doesn't answer the normative threshold question of whether they should accommodate. So to get at that, let's look at patients. So the case study I opened with is what I imagine most people envision when they think about patients rejecting physicians based on race or ethnicity. But it can often look quite different. So let's take a couple real world case studies. So here we have an older Korean man. He goes to the hospital with symptoms that suggest, suggest congestive heart failure. He's, he's provided treatment that offers a very good chance of success, and he'd likely make a full recovery, and all seems to be going well, until one day he says he only wants to be treated by physicians in suits. The staff is puzzled by this request, and it's ultimately denied. The patient then becomes increasingly withdrawn and eventually refuses treatment altogether. The hospital performs a competency test. Uh, he's found to be competent. So they respect his wishes and all treatment is stopped. So this would have been the end of it had not someone not noticed that he'd filled out a form requesting full resuscitation should he go into cardiopulmonary arrest. Um, when confronted with this seeming contradiction and after some prodding, the patient asked whether they noticed that his treating physicians were all Japanese or of Japanese descent. The hospital was in Hawaii, which has a large Japanese-American population, and the patient was Korean and elderly and remembered Imperial Japan. And he said he didn't trust these physicians. 
He said he didn't believe that they had his best interests in mind. And the reason he wanted to be treated by physicians in suits is that he noted, noticed that a higher percentage of non-Japanese American physicians uh, wore suits because they also taught in the medical school. So it was a more sort of palatable, more PC way of, of him for, uh, for asking for what he wanted. Okay. okay, case study three. Here we have an African-American woman. She presents with symptoms suggestive of renal failure. And she's fairly uncommunicative with her assigned physician. She's giving very reluctant yes and no questions as they try to take her history. And at some point during this process, she sees an African-American doctor treating another patient. And she points and says, I want to talk to him. Why might this patient be discriminating? What's that? Exactly. Perhaps she'd had a positive prior experience with um, uh, uh, an African-American physician. Perhaps she'd had a prior negative experience with a non-African-American physician. But maybe it's simple prejudice. At this point, we don't know. Okay. So, case study four, the patient is Latina. She arrives in the ER after two weeks of rhinorrhea, sinus pain, and other symptoms suggestive of viral sinusitis. And as she's getting her history taken, she declares she doesn't want the assigned Latino physician. She wants an American doctor. And when asked why she's making this request, she says she came to the US because things are better here, better treatments, better services, and better doctors. And she associates American doctors with white doctors. Now, let me ask you a question. How is the patient's request in scenario three different from the others? Exactly. She's specifically, she's specifically asking for a form of concordance, right? So we see this with women who want a female OBGYN or Muslim patients who might want a uh, religiously or culturally concordant physician. So in this way, it's a bit different, but it's still discrimination. Now, let's go back to case study two for a second. Physicians may see a similar version of this among veterans who don't want to be treated by a, a, a patient who reminds them of a former enemy combatant, right? Perhaps it's bias, but maybe it's PTSD. So we can argue that discrimination is bad, and it often is, but the idea of discrimination becomes much more complicated in the clinical medical context, particularly in emergency situations where you can't just tell the patient to take the doctor they've been assigned or leave. Um, and sometimes the patient's behavior very clearly seems to be based in bigotry and animus. But other times, it looks different. So what might, what might the patients in um, case study two and three be looking for? What might be underlying their request? Exactly, so you said it also as well. Trust. Now, you know that trust is an important part of the physician-patient relationship, but this is particularly important for patients who are from marginalized or underserved communities. Many studies show they're not as trusting, they're not as confident in the healthcare system. Um, and this feeling of mistrust that we see among members of racial minority groups isn't just random paranoia. Studies show that they often have very good reason not to trust the healthcare system. Overwhelming evidence shows that racial and ethnic minorities still tend to receive poor quality health care as compared to whites, even when factors such as insurance status is controlled. And some of this is due to structural factors. Um, 
but research also shows that sadly, there's still a lot of racial bias in medical practice, and minority patients disproportionately receive substandard health care due to physician prejudice. Now studies show that most doctors, uh, most clinicians hold non-racist views, but many health care providers do harbor implicit biases. And studies show that physicians' implicit biases against ethnic and racial minority patients, particularly black patients, negatively affects clinical relationships, clinical decision-making, and health outcomes, and often contributes to the well-documented and widespread uh, health disparities that we see among racial groups. However, data shows that for some patients, particularly patients of color, physician-patient race concordance can counter the effects of implicit bias, discrimination, and stereotyping by physicians, and in fact, tends to promote more participatory decision-making, greater trust, more productive communication, and greater patient satisfaction. And all of this goes to the core of the physician-patient relationship. Now, this doesn't mean that we need to default to race-concordant physician-patient relationships. Instead, all of this is to say that when we hear about patients and their race-based reassignment demands, our first instinct may be to simply deny these requests. But in order to provide appropriate care to all patients, it may be necessary to distinguish between garden variety racism and patients seeking a provider who they feel can understand their experience, who will show them respect, and whom they can trust. So the question then becomes, how can these be accomplished? How can we distinguish between these types of requests? And then how should we respond? So to get at this, my co-authors and I have devised five ethical guidelines to inform physicians' decision making uh, when these encounters occur. And these factors include consideration of the patient's uh, medical condition, an assessment of the patient's decision making capacity, the reason for the request, the physician's options for responding to the request, and the effect on the physician. And these guidelines can be helpful as you engage the patient through negotiation, persuasion, and then if necessary, accommodation. So let's go through these and apply them to our case studies. In every case, the patient's medical condition should drive clinical decision making. So in an emergency situation, the patient has to be stabilized and uh, treated and stabilized. Now, our algorithm, again, is geared towards um, adult patients, but um, in, in situations with an adult patient, you should also assess the patient's decision-making capacity, because reassignment requests that seem to be based on bigotry can also be due to delirium, psychosis, or dementia, and a patient's preferences may, ch may change if a reversible disorder is caught and treated. Um, so, for example, in the first case study I, I opened with, you might want to check and see if the patient is cognitively impaired. Now, if the patient is competent, then the patient may be open to persuasion. And this goes uh, to uh, the, the parents of a child as well. So a member of the medical staff or an on-call administrator could explain that all the physicians on staff are, are, um, are well qualified, that the patient's health could be jeopardized by any delay caused by trying to find another provider. And while doing this, you want to establish mutually uh, acceptable expectations for the provision of care. Now, the next step in this process is to determine the reason for the request. Because often, the rationale behind the request is ethically and um, clinically significant. So for example, it may be ethically appropriate to accommodate a reassignment request that's seeking language or cultural concordance. But as we've already discussed, it's not always so clear cut. 
So for example, in the first cut case study, could be it's bigotry. Second case study, maybe it's PTSD. Third case study, is this a patient seeking uh, ethnicity or race concordance? And the fourth, is this a misunderstanding about the patient, the physician's qualifications? So to get behind, to, to get to the rationale behind the request, you should ask open-ended questions. You can ask the patient or family to tell you more so you can better understand their concerns, all the while acknowledging that these, these conversations are difficult. It may be hard for the patient to be explicit about why they don't want Dr. X, knowing full well that Dr. X is your colleague and perhaps your friend. So you can stress to the patient or the family that if they're open with you, you're better able to provide the, the most appropriate care. So you're trying to identify and name what may be underlying the request, which is um, an important part of establishing trust. Now, this can be very effective if you're dealing with anxieties or fears, but it's going to be less successful if you're dealing with bigotry or animus. So this brings us to the next factor, which is the physician's options for responding to the request. If you're the only physician available, or if you don't want to reallocate staff, or if you don't want to reallocate patients, then you can try to negotiate with the patient or the family to try and allow, um, allow you to provide care until another physician comes on duty. So for patients in case study three and four, this type of negotiation might be effective. Uh, if the patient or family still refuses, then you have to pursue other options. For outpatients, they can be informed of their right to seek care elsewhere if they object to a provider on the basis of race or ethnicity. And for inpatients, if they're stable uh, and the request appears to be based on bigotry, then an administrator could inform the patient or the family of their right to, uh, to seek uh, care elsewhere and, um, and their obligation not to engage in abusive or hateful speech. If the patient and the family still fail to comply, then they can be assisted in transferring to a, uh, another hospital. Now, for patients who aren't stabilized or in an emergency situation, a nurse or a medical resident could be allowed to conduct the evaluation, but it has to be made clear to the patient that the assigned physician is still responsible and that having someone else perform the evaluation is outside the standard of care. And finally, if other emergency physicians are available, it's reasonable for all the physicians involved to decide amongst themselves whether to reassign the patient to another physician um, is, is uh, practicable within uh, uh, reasonable constraints. Um, and they can do so if doing so doesn't jeopardize the care of other patients. Uh, so for the patient in case study two, our Korean gentleman, this is in fact what the physicians did. They decided to accommodate his request. He then accepted care, made a full recovery, and went home. Now, regardless of which approach you take, it's imperative that you inform patients and families that hateful and racist speech won't be tolerated. In the last scenario, the patient's reassignment, uh, the patient's demand, reassignment demand was accommodated. But accommodation clearly isn't a perfect solution. And none of this is to suggest that we shouldn't be concerned about bigotry or racism on the part of some patients, or cases where the patient isn't just requesting concordance, but is explicitly rejecting a provider on the basis of uh, his or her ethnic and racial background, because this tends to negatively and disproportionately affect providers of color. And each time it happens, it's like another slice of the knife, and the cumulative effect can be significant. 
As you can imagine, these rejections are painful and demeaning um, for the physician involved, and they can exact a heavy emotional and psychological toll, and all of this contributes to burnout. So for example, I'll give you uh, a recent example. I'm from New York City, um, uh, so a recent PEDS example from New York. A, a pediatric resident went into the room to meet her patient. She introduced herself, and then she got down on one knee to give the patient a high five, and just as she was about to do so, the father said, I don't want any black doctors touching my child. Don't you touch my child. I need a white doctor, I need one now. So, even if the resident decides that she no longer wants to work with this family, the episode isn't over for her. The emotional and psychological toll will linger. Today we're in a patient-centered culture of care, which is very important, but we can't forget first-line providers, which are often nurses, residents, and trainees. Um, so when these cases arise, there also has to be a formalized process in place, and this is particularly important when we're dealing with residents and trainees. A 2016 study from Stanford found that 19% of trainees experienced discriminatory verbal abuse, 93% uh, of over 400 first-year residents had experienced disruptive behavior, including racial bias. 15% had, uh, of residents had personally experienced or witnessed mistreatment, and among them, 50% said they didn't know how to respond to these encounters, while 25% said they didn't believe anything would be done if they alerted hospital management. So this tells us something. This, this, there doesn't seem to be enough institutional support for trainees or residents, or actually for nurses and doctors for that matter, when these cases often occur. Um, institutions really need to be there for these groups. They need to know that they'll be supported, that someone has their back. So first, when these incidents occur, um, particularly if we're dealing with trainees or residents, if a supervisor is present, um, then they, wait, want, they might want to wait a moment and see if the trainee or resident wants to handle the situation um, themselves. But if they don't, then the supervisor has to step in and let the patient know that the trainees and residents are uh, perfectly qualified to be doing what they're doing and that hate, hateful speech won't be tolerated or condoned. And if she's able, the supervisor's able, which also isn't always the case, but if they are, they should step out with a trainee or um, a resident and ask them how they want to proceed. And whatever they decide, it's important, it's imperative that the supervisor model appropriate behavior. All right. And after the event, it's important to follow up and debrief by giving the affected staff an opportunity to talk about the incident, preferably one-on-one -on -one with a, a trusted point person on, on staff who has debriefing and facilitation skills. Because this is all about taking people's difficult experiences seriously. And it's important not to minimize the, the encounter. So supervisors and institutions really need to commit to understanding how members of the staff may have experienced the rejection. In addition to debriefing uh, with the rejected provider, the institution should also address the fact that these rejections can have a coercive effect on those who witness the encounter, but don't know what to do or how to respond. So you should probably, so you may want to have a whole team meeting. So those in the team who've had these experiences can talk about what's worked for them, what hasn't worked, people can share experiences. And this is important because prevention is impossible. So members of the team are probably going to have this experience themselves or watch somebody else going through it at some point in their careers. And by these encounters, I mean not just rejections on the basis of race or ethnicity, but rejections on the basis of disability status, religion, um, gender, 
age for that matter, age is one of the most common rejections. You know, you look too young to be a doctor. I want somebody with more gray hairs, you know, give me somebody older. Um, so you need, so everybody needs to learn the skills to handle these situations. Another reason to have a team meeting um, is that members of the team may have no idea that this is happening to their colleagues. So you want to bring these instances to light, not only to inform the team, but also as a means of protecting the person who's experienced the rejection from internalizing it. Because these rejections can feel like an assault, and internalizing the rejection is more likely to happen if the person feels alone in the experience, or feels that they won't support, be supported, or that they'll be accused of being overly sensitive. Uh, because, for, again, for some providers, these encounters could be macroaggressions that come on the heels of several microaggressions. So supervisors and institutions have to support staff with an eye towards creating an appropriate future response. Um, so institutions should collect data on how often these occur and um, to get baseline information on how often they occur, the institution's response, the ultimate resolution, the effect on the physician, um, how personnel feel supported, um, and how the personnel feel about the institution's response. So you should have a real and meaningful systematic understanding and response. You know, make a prevalence map. You know, what, what, de what departments is this happening most often in? And all of this can be used to create best practices, because the more information you have, the better your response will be. Now, in order for these institutional uh, uh, changes to be most effective, they also have to include institutional culture change. So as we've seen with the recent tide of uh, sexual harassment allegations in the Me Too movement, many of the people coming forward and making these claims worked at uh, institutions that had um, anti-discrimination policies. They just didn't have a norm of reporting, of people coming forward and reporting sexual harassment. Sometimes the people didn't feel safe reporting, other times they didn't feel perhaps that their claims would be taken seriously, or they felt that the claims would somehow come back to bite them, negatively affecting their career trajectory. And the same can be said with regard to how healthcare workers, but particularly residents and trainees, for example, may feel about reporting their treatment by patients. So even with the best policies and protocols in place, a culture of non-reporting will undermine any meaningful change. As we know, norms play an important role in shifting behavior because conduct is governed less by formal rules than by patterns of behavior that have accumulated normative power over time. So supervisors and institutions need to be sensitive to this and work with institutions to um, and work together to create a norm of reporting and a culture of supporting. And finally, the medical profession as a whole has to expand cultural awareness at all levels of practice and training so that providers can interact more effectively with various patient populations. Um, and the profession has to increase diversity, uh, beginning in medical school. And this should be done with an eye towards uh, encouraging tolerance and understanding of other cultures. So we need to create, we need to um, train a more culturally aware core of physicians. So I have eight seconds left. So really quickly, um, uh, but before all of this happens, I, I, I feel the, the five ethical guidelines that I've laid out, uh, along with a norm of reporting and a culture of supporting, um, are a clinically, ethically, and legally appropriate means of balancing the rights of interests of patients, providers, and healthcare institutions. So, thank you. All right. Here, here. PhD Kamani Paul Emil. Excellently, excellently 
depicted. Now, people, these this is actual factual. As hard as it may seem, these things do happen. They do happen. Believe that. So do not think that, you know, this is all made up because it's far from being made up. Believe that. And I think everyone needs to be uh, put on notice that, you know, sometimes we, we all have our own little, you know, little quirks with that, you know, uh, even as black people, you know what I'm saying? You know, so we have to be very vigilant and careful on, on how we uh, you know, present ourselves while we're in these institutions. Because, like it says, it could, it could come back to bite you, you know, in, in a different form. So with that being said, you know, hey, you know, Always act appropriately, you know, even when getting health care, you know. Because like it says, it's just that. It's the care of your health. You don't want to disturb these people, you know, with, while they're exercising the care of your health. But, you know, uh, we live in the real world, and these are, are things that we have to deal with. But, um, you know, a lot of professionals experience racism, you know, especially in the healthcare system, you know, so... I have some more, you know, medical professionals, you know, who, who want to share, you know, some of their experiences, you know, uh, with just that. So <coughs> I want to um, allow them to, to do just that. So uh, we'll get right to it, right to it. We just want to take care of people. We don't care what you look like, uh, what you do. In your own personal time, in your own four walls, we just want to take care of people. patient that uh, was very, very ill, um, had a perforated stomach, and needed surgery emergently to save her life. She was going to die if we didn't do surgery. Um, and I went in to meet with her with my residents, and we kind of explained the plan and said, you know, if you don't have surgery, you're not going to make it, so we need to go right now. And in the midst of all of her pain and distress, she said, well, I don't really want a black doctor. Is there anyone else? And you know, at that point, you know, my skin is, you know, six inches thick at this point. And so I said, ma'am, I'm perfectly happy to walk out of this room right now. Just know that I'm the only surgeon that's on call right now. There is no such thing as a second opinion tonight. I'm the one that's going to be here. I'm happy to save your life. But if it's your choice that you don't want me to provide my services, then that's your choice. And I walked out of the room. I got a call back about 30 minutes later from the nurse saying, she changed her mind, she wants to go to surgery. And I took her to surgery all the same, all that notwithstanding, because it's the right thing, it's, it's my job. I don't judge people based on their beliefs, what they want to do, I don't care about any of that. If you come into the hospital, I'll give you the same care that I would give my own mother because that's the oath that I took to take care of my patients. had an employee um, at the time she was supporting our area um, she came up to me um, on a day that I wore a very nice new dress and she said you look really nice today but from here down which then she excluded my natural hair and it was pretty traumatic at first I really had to take a step back and say okay this is coming from a place of you know, ignorance? Is it coming from a place of, I just need to understand? Um, is it just being malicious? Um, I didn't know. Uh, I, when I reflect on my experiences, 
the majority of the aggressions have probably been from patients and or their advocates. Um, I have been told once before that as the physician assistant in my team that the patient did not want to see me because of my color. And so you're always checking yourself with our day-to-day -day lives, what you're doing, how you carry yourself, how you speak, your approaches and everything, because especially being African, I have also to, I have a, I'm a, what they call it, um, a double minority. We call it a double minority, I'm a minority of a minority. So you're always just checking yourself, making sure that you are presenting yourself well enough that you'll be accepted. You, you always have to go above and beyond just to be at the, at the basic level, so. I think as a, a nurse of color, it's, it's always been a challenge going through nursing school. Um, it's been a challenge on the job. Like I said, there's not a lot of people who look like me um, in areas that I've worked in. And so you do feel that you have to work a little bit harder. Um, not too many kids, when I go to my kids' elementary school, will just assume I'm a doctor. That's typically not the first response. If I tell somebody I work at the hospital, the initial assumption is not that I'm a doctor. Um, and, and in the world, in 2020, the United States of America just should not be that way. It, it is exceptionally hard to have to do everything that my colleagues do and be black. I have to do all the stuff, I have to take all the risks, worry about getting sued if I mess up, being late to work, being tired, just not feeling like doing something some days. And then on top of all that, you see all the things that happen on TV and social media and read and print, and you just have to read that and say, you know, yeah, that could be me today, hopefully it's not. And, and still go be excellent at your job. The George Floyd video that, you know, kind of really set off everything else that's going on right now. I think, you know, the, the, the calloused indifference of those officers as this man begged for his life was something that transcended race, frankly. I mean, I, I don't know that anybody can really watch that video and not feel something. I have gotten so used to putting a cap or a lid on my feelings. Um, it has been difficult to come to work on a day after watching a video of another person who I see reflected in the mirror or my husband or my brother um, or even my father and I come to work and everybody else is fine. Everyone else is in the hallway asking me, oh hey Candace, how you doing? And I'm like, I am hurting on the inside because I just saw another reflection of the same systemic oppression of people who look like me since I've been on this planet and everybody else is okay and I'm not okay. So I've had friends, especially in the last couple of weeks, who have reached out and said, hey, I know that the world is not a fair place for you and that maybe it's hard to come to work. I just want you to know that I want to be an ally. I'm sorry that I haven't been the best one in the past. I don't know how, or I want to learn more. Can you just share more of your story with me? That's been beautiful. And I think
think taking care of patients that look like you and seeing the relief and the gratitude that's on their faces when you realize that you are making, I'm gonna cry, but when you realize that you are making a difference in health disparities um, for people who look like you, when you realize that, oh wow, because of me, because I was here today, I was able to help someone who looked just like my mom or my sister or my brother, um, it makes all of it worth it, but it also just highlights how important um, this journey is. Yes, how very, very important that journey is. You know, as you have heard, many health professionals have, have witnessed and, and been um, victims of this. It's just absolutely deplorable, but this is the world that we live in. You know, you know, we have to take it as it is, not as we would have it. You know, it's like the serenity prayer. It really is. And uh, it's just painful. Absolutely, unequivocally painful. But, you know, our system needs work. Yes, it does. Believe that. But let, let's take it a, a, a step back. Um, how far back does this disparity go? Does it, does it reach slavery? I wonder, you know. Uh, I have a, a clip that, that, that dives into that, and I, I want to also share that, you know, with you so uh, we can digest it and, you know, let it marinate and, and, and see if, if it actually does go back that far. From education to employment, income to home ownership, African-Americans endure a range of inequalities. But the gaps in health and wellness might be the most ominous of all these disparities. For too many of us, our primary health care comes in emergency rooms. Instead of preventive care, we're in catastrophic care. African-American men who, at an alarming rate, have been diagnosed with prostate cancer. Health disparities between black women and white women are well documented. Did you know that African-Americans are almost twice as likely to have diabetes? I would have to say, just based off of the patient population that I've experienced, you know, during my time here in Minnesota, in my professional career, and even in residency, we as African-Americans will present one for later stages for cancers, more malignant forms of hypertension, uncontrolled diabetes, overweight. There's also some resistance to the whole health culture. Mental health issues are real, and we have to understand that we can't pray away everything your health transfers over into other parts of your life. If you're sick, you can't go to work, so in terms of the economy, so it's kind of a ripple effect. These medical inequities are complicated by daunting and convoluted approaches to health insurance. I have a, a slight heart murmur, and, um, uh, and so it led to me being categorized as uh, uninsurable. I ended up having to pay $800 a month and with a $6,000 deductible, $3,000 for me and $3,000 for my children, just the weight of premium and deductible, uh, we have this, this dark cloud overhead. Pastor is a trusted voice, and so um, that's why I'm stepping forward. That's why I'm sharing my, basically sharing my story. 
And being a pastor, you see what happens to a lot of people who are, uh, are not insured, young people and old people. Young people are, are really not thinking through just how important uh, health care is and, and living a healthy lifestyle is. Health care concerns may be far from the minds of many millennials, but feeling invincible can keep some young adults from considering health care options. My generation and the generation um, after me being accountable to uh, making sure that we are engaging. We want to know the nuts and bolts behind this. I'm an active member with the Temple of Hip Hop, uh, which is KRS-One's organization. You gotta keep doing this, yo, Cable, pursuing this. I'm one of the official hip hop cultural specialists that have been directly guided and taught by KRS-One as well as Ministers in Aru. Uh, what I do is just looking at everything through a hip hop lens. I mean, in essence, hip is a form of knowledge. To be hip is to be updated and relevant. Hop is a movement. So hip-hop, in essence, is about intelligent movement. And so we're not just going to blindly follow just because the masses say, hey, go sign up for health care. Exclusion, discrimination, and the historic trauma that follows have created barriers to black participation in these systems. Over 200 years of a sort of hesitation towards the government structures and institutions and corporate structures and institutions. Um, so there's a lot of, we don't want to go to the doctor because we don't trust you. And I think that definitely goes back towards, you know, of course, the Tuskegee experiment. The healthcare system itself, it has created some distrust, and I definitely do understand that. My uh, parents grew up in the Deep South, in Jackson, Mississippi. When my mother had a toothache, uh, of course, they could not go in the front door. They had to go to the back door. They, they wouldn't actually feel your tooth. They would actually pull them. And so what it developed in her is this apprehension about going to the dentist that she lived with for many, many, many years, uh, even after moving to Minnesota. And that kind of fear I think is pretty uh, pervasive within the African-American community. It's a fear that emanates from historical reality. This historical reality is that African-Americans have been neglected and mistreated by medicine, health insurance, as well as banking and other financial systems. African-Americans didn't come to this country as buyers and sellers and participants in the market in a traditional way. We were the property in the market that was being bought and sold medical experiments, malnourishment, poor hygiene, sexual assault, exposure to disease, violence, and many other maladies were visited upon the physical and mental health of enslaved Africans. The other thing that many people don't know is that for us, on many plantations, health care was attended to by veterinarians, not by physicians. So there's been a long deep distrust of health and the care of our people. The medical and scientific community supported racist ideology with diagnoses specifically for blacks. Medical science even identified being black as a disorder, calling it negritude. The slave owners had to justify their treatment of my ancestors by convincing themselves that we were an inferior people. 
therefore, denying health care, denying education, denying family, so they could live with themselves. Following slavery, from Reconstruction through Jim Crow segregation, separate but equal laws perpetuated the unequal access to health care. Some scholars conclude that much of today's health disparities are directly attributable to the slave health deficit and all that followed. But too often the focus is on the problems, pain, and pathos found in African-American history. Discovering truth, revealing little-known realities, and surprising stories can offer inspiration and instruction, even in the world of healthcare insurance and other forms of financial self-sufficiency. You've heard before how we couldn't get pork chops, so we made chitlins a delicacy. Well, in the same vein, uh, we had African-American leaders, primarily coming out of our religious community, ministers like Absalom Jones and Richard Allen, who at the end of the 18th century, while we were still struggling with slavery and disconnects of all sorts, created out of their religious fervor, mutual aid societies. Richard Allen, along with a number of other black Methodist bodies that came together, uh, formed the African Methodist Episcopal Church and incorporated, had our first general conference in 1816. The AME Church you know, initially started from uh, what we like to consider is the, the first sit-in in, in uh, Philadelphia in 1787, led by Richard Allen, Absalom Jones, and some worshipers uh, at St. George's Methodist Episcopal Church where they were not uh, welcome to worship freely. After they completed their prayer, they walked out and they started the Free African Society, which was a benevolent society that was really focused on caring for those that really were having trouble caring for themselves. The Free African Society's Articles of Incorporation, written in the spring of 1787, call out a concern with health and wellness that resonates across the centuries as they stated, a society should be formed without regard to religious tenets, provided the persons lived an orderly and sober life, in order to support one another in sickness and for the benefit of their widows and fatherless children. African Americans pool their funds that we might be able to bury our dead, that we might be able to take care of the widows, that we might be able to provide some health care for the youth. We can find mutual aid societies providing protection, providing funds for food, for education, libraries, um, homes that were founded for orphans of color who had nowhere to go, who couldn't be part of orphanages that served white people. All of these sorts of things as at the same time, they were fighting against slavery. In the very beginning, I mean, the, the black church was, was everything to the African-American. I mean, uh, it, it was a place where we, we did our, our theology, of course, and our, our, our politics. It was our conservatory of music. It was everything for the, for the African-American family and, and the African-American child. The gospel of Jesus Christ is about wholeness for people. If you look at Jesus in the Gospels as the story is told, he's always concerned about the wellness of people. Uh, people who were blind, he wanted to have sight. People who were deaf, he wanted them to be able to hear. People who were crippled, he wanted them to be able to walk straight. And people who were even having uh, issues with emotions, he wanted them to be whole, right? And so the church should operate the same way. 
The scriptures say that it is the desire of God that we prosper in our health in the same way that our soul would prosper. The holistic um, kind of philosophy that undergirds the black church comes out of our kind of collective struggle. And so we have to address and have had to address these kinds of issues collectively for some time. Well, it's an important model because at the time, um, there was no insurance for black folks. These uh, historic uh, works of these heroes evolved from mutual aid societies to, as we move further down the line, African-American insurance companies, the Atlanta Lifes, the Golden State Mutuals, the Supreme Life Insurances, the North Carolina Mutuals. A multi-million dollar enterprise operated solely by and for Negroes. Inside the home office this morning, switchboard operators, clerks, stenographers, bookkeepers and secretaries prepare for a routine day's work with their usual composed dignity. These came as responses of a community that was left out that decided it needed to take care of itself. Charles Spaulding makes his way through the busy third floor office to the early struggle of youth, the three white collars, and the day he closed his struggling grocery store to become general manager of Durham's first Negro insurance company, the North Carolina Mutual and Provident Association. What they did was so much a part of what our people did. Our people have always felt that they needed to lead the way in resolving those problems. You look back on history and you look back on our ancestors and our current elders and their ability to take ownership of the health of our community, you know, was so powerful. Cooperatives offered another avenue of economic self-reliance. We think about slavery as an economic institution. You can see why it would be very easy and seem like common sense to many African-Americans to form economic cooperatives that actually go against the grain of that hyper-individualistic, exploitative capitalism because they and their families and their friends had been debased by that kind of capitalism. And you see figures from Du Bois to Ella Baker to Ida B. Wells and others calling for African-Americans to not you know, turn their backs on trying to build wealth, but to do it in a different way, a way that would not be so exploitative. In Oklahoma, this section of Tulsa that had lots of African-American owned businesses, and people like to call it the Black Wall Street of the Midwest. Well, Wall Street has this connotation of hyper-capitalism, making money, getting a good return on your investment. But obviously, the people who put together what we call Black Wall Street in hindsight were working together the whole time. It's not that they were trying to leverage futures or something like this. They were bringing people together, creating credit unions, grocery stores, small businesses that they knew people in their, in their neighborhood would frequent, and they also knew were under siege. And unfortunately, in this case, that came true with a white race riot that just completely destroyed that part of town.
Many people have started to talk again about the history of the Southern Tenant Farmers Union, which brought sharecroppers together to pool their resources and try to get better ways of selling their crops and getting fair prices, as well as fair rent on the lands that they worked. So these spaces we usually think of as places where people are just hiding and scared and waiting for the civil rights movement decades from now to happen. But actually, if we look at this history very closely, we can see people across the country banding together and trying to make a better life by using these cooperative entities to leverage the power of the group. The strong history of African-American labor unions offers yet another example of effectively engaging in economic systems. People know what a union is in terms of laborers negotiating with management. However, the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, which is one of the most important labor organizations founded by African-Americans, also had a ladies' auxiliary. And those two organizations, the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters and their Ladies Auxiliary, created cooperative economic institutions, including grocery stores and credit unions, to help members and their communities become economically stronger. We don't want to romanticize the kind of self-reliance efforts that occurred during the Jim Crow or slavery past. Uh, people making pretty bold statements about how Jim Crow helped keep black people together, I think that's a very dangerous path to go down. However, I think it is important for us to relearn or learn for the first time a lot of the stories of African-American community cooperative economic development. While African-Americans have had to create self-sufficient systems for health care since the first decades of nationhood, the broader American journey towards affordable health care is a long and difficult one that goes back to the progressive era. Remarkable thing about health insurance and the, the clarity that we've had in these United States about how important health care is, we hearken all the way back to Theodore Roosevelt. In 1909, Roosevelt organized the first White House Conference on the Health of Dependent Children. But with the progressive era fading and with the start of World War I, federal efforts on health care faltered. His cousin later, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, pressed for universal health care. He ended up coming away with Social Security. FDR had to remove health care coverage to assure passage of the Social Security Bill in 1935. He tried for health care reform again in the late 30s but the decline of the New Deal and the outbreak of World War II ended these efforts. Harry Truman pressed for universal health care and was unable to achieve it. Subsequently, we had efforts by Lyndon Johnson and Nixon, William Jefferson Clinton and Hillary, all to achieve health care. None were able to achieve it. 98 years of struggle in this country towards universal health care was unable to achieve it. So the work of President Obama to bring forward health care is a source of pride for us. I'm not the first president to take up this cause, but I am determined to be the last. At the end of the day, no matter what side of the aisle, improving health care was important to everyone. It was just how you get there. And we're going to sign this bill. More challenges remained after the Affordable Care Act became law. From Supreme Court decisions to the development of the online marketplaces, the process continued to be contentious and controversial. What we're going to do to, to 
today is create your account mm-hmm. on the Mentor site and complete an application and submit it. But now it's more about people and less about politics. It's about making sure everyone can access these marketplaces to get the best health care insurance for themselves and their families. I am Tamika Todi, Mentor Navigator Coordinator for Stearson Foundation. I was sent a letter to reapply mm-hmm. my insurance uh, by computer. Major's concern was he didn't have um, access to computer or internet at home. So come on in, Major will sit down and we'll take care of this. So in this section, we'll add the other people that are in your household. Mm-hmm. He had a couple questions along the way, so I was able to answer those questions. We have had some glitches, and the nice thing about the tool is there's so much support. If there's a, a case where um, online's not available, we can still do a paper application. So it's really a nice support community. It's always backup. That is the process all done. All right. Thank you very You're much. You're welcome. Thanks, when we're able to see this positive change and see um, individuals getting their household covered. And it's also nice to see when there's people that might have been paying these huge premiums and, and deductibles and had these pre-existing issues, seeing them having affordable coverage. It's, it's really nice. Because you get used to forking out that close to $1,000 a month. And, uh, but when the, the numbers came up, and you, you, it, was, it was a revelation, and it was, uh, it was a blessing. Uh, it was a, a life-changing. I, I had kids in college, and so uh, three, in fact. And so those monies can be used elsewhere. So I, I'm really I'm, I'm grateful. It's not enough for me to benefit. I think that the church is an incredible venue, an avenue through which uh, the story should be told. That we have a responsibility to empower people, our people, and people in general. We have been setting up mass community enrollment events in churches. We answer any questions that individuals might have, and then we actually do enrollment right there on site. So we're enrolling people right there at those events. We hosted one Minsure Navigation session after our Sunday worship. We had several navigators come out and assist uh, folks with getting signed up, and uh, it was an awesome time. And it was good to, to uh, be able to be involved in helping people uh, get the health care that they need. Without that trusted voice, we, we found that in our, our community, uh, people won't step forward. People won't get in, in, engaged. They won't sign up. Our events are open to the public. They're held in churches around the community, but they're open to the surrounding neighborhoods. Everyone. I remember sitting with a white male coming into a little Baptist church and just kind of looking around at, at all the children running, you know, and just being amazed and, and welcomed and helped. I understand the fear that can come along when you don't have coverage for your family. And I understand the, the bills that can pile up because you're still <laughs> doing those things that you have to do to um, protect your family. We had two that were off to college, and we had three that remained at home. And we had to make some real decisions because both parents being outside of the house at the exact same time with childcare for three children becomes a little challenging. And my wife could not, uh, we had to have surgery for her, and I mean major surgery, uh, about eight weeks ago. And in the process of having major surgery about eight weeks ago, uh, when we first signed up for uh, Minshore, as a man, as a husband, as a father, uh, it was a very proud moment to say, you know, honey, children, 
we have this insurance and dad was able to get this done. The pride that he can have in signing his family up, especially for the men in the community to be able to kind of have that as an example and be like, yeah, you know what, that's great. If it worked for him, it'll work for me. We are in 40 years now of hip hop culture. Really when it kind of got started, it was all just about the self-expression, um, self-reliance. But at the same time, now that we're at 40 years, we see a lot of the pioneers of the culture who are aging, who are looking at different health issues. Cool DJ Herc, who is one of the, the pioneers of the culture, uh, back in 2011, he actually ended up uh, having kidney stones. Of course, no health insurance. This is something now that the masses of the hip-hop community are beginning to start to look at, but they're not going to just sign up blindly. So there has to be an awareness campaign. There has to be some outreach. There has to be community engagement. The Invincibles think they're young and they're going to live forever. And it's just good to inform them of the importance of health insurance and coverage. And you want to have it and not need it versus need it and not have it. It's important to take care of yourself and have access to all of those health resources and do the preventative steps versus the catastrophic care. There's a writer who said, we're all just temporarily able-bodied. And so if we think about healthcare in that way and we think about preventative care, getting into that system and thinking about yourself as actually doing a social good by being part of a healthcare system is another way of thinking about it. We can be the model for the nation about how to get health care for everybody and how to get the community healthy. The reality is we're in this together. It, this is a, uh, a life-changing thing and has been life-changing for, for a lot of people. And uh, I think ultimately uh, we'll change our, our, the world in which we live. I think the biggest thing is having uh, the know of who started this process and why it began and, and why we have to arrive to this place. We understand how important healthcare is. If we understand that history of, of the mutual aid societies and the African-American health insurance companies, that we might move from a place of disadvantage to a place of inclusion and respect. I know that Absalom Jones and Richard Allen thrilled to think that President Barack Obama thought enough about the importance of universal health care that he staked his entire political capital on achieving it. Glory to God, 2010, he was able to stroke the pen. History, disparity, slavery, black health care. Till next time, it's the O, the Z, the Oz, that's me. Brooklyn, Brownsville. Urban View. You know what we do. But we through.